0: You're listening to Cross Life, the college ministry of Grace Bible Church in Bozeman, Montana. Our current series is Imago Day, a study of how the character of God impacts your daily life. He's in the dry desert of the Sahara in the heat of the day. He was there when man landed on the moon in the deepest part of space. And he was also there on the side of the September 11th attacks. He was there in the midst of the Holocaust while the Jewish people were tortured. And he's there at the abortion clinics where many more are tortured. He's there when man shakes his fist against him in sins and rebellion, saying in his heart, there is no God. And he's there when another falls to his knees in tears and cries out, Lord, save me. Save me, God. You see, God is everywhere. Well, as Tanner introduced me, my name's Matt, and I count it a privilege to be able to talk to you guys tonight. Um, I have the privilege of talking about God's omnipresence this evening. God is everywhere. Um, some of those scenarios that I just spoke of are hard to consider. They're tough to fathom. Um, man, even when Christians are mistreated, even the thought of Christians, His own people being mistreated. Was God really there? Was He really? Um. You know, and if it weren't for the previous two weeks of our study, we might we might be inclined to say, well, God's a, He's a monster. He's a monster. But no, let us remember. Let us remember two weeks ago, um, I talked about wisdom, and that is that God... God's wisdom is that He always does the best thing and He always does the best means to get to that thing. So He always does the best and He does the best way of getting to that best. Um, And then last week, Andy talked about God Almighty. God is all-powerful or omnipotent. You see, if His his omnipresence were not complemented with omnipotence and wisdom, we would have a tyrant. We would have a tyrant. We'd be dealing with a guy with a God with infinite power and authority over everything, yet no moral constraint. Um, but that's not our God. Our God is good. Our God is holy. He is just. He is righteous. And He is wise. Um, and He's all of these things fully. I like thinking of Tanner up here saying it's not that He's part this and part this, but He's fully this and He's fully this. God is fully all of these things. Well, light in, the fact, in light of the fact that He is fully all of those things, tonight we're going to consider a particular attribute of him and that's his omnipresence like i mentioned earlier Um, and just let us not forget the rest of god's attributes though as we do this well considering god's omnipresence alone um, especially after hearing my opening comments uh, might make you wonder was god really there Um, if you turn with me to psalm 139 though uh, i'll begin Proving to you that God is omnipresent, if you will. We're going to go to Psalm 139, verses 1 through 10. Um, Psalms is right in the middle of your Bible. And uh, this is a psalm by David. Um, I'm going to read 1 through 10, although our focus for a moment here will be 7 through 10. Um, Starting in 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, You know it all. You have enclosed behind me and before and laid Your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from Your Spirit, or where can I flee from Your presence? If I ascend to heaven, You are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, You are there. If I take the wings of dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there, your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. Um, verses 1 through 6 here talk about God's omniscience, how he knows everything. And then, and then David shifts to 7 through 10. He talks about God's omnipresence, how he is everywhere. Um, and that's kind of where we're going to focus. Uh, in verse 7, we're introduced to this fact that God is everywhere, he cannot be fled from. Uh, David says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Further, not only is God everywhere on earth, but He's everywhere outside of the earth. God is in heaven and God is in hell. God is in heaven and God is in hell. Verse 8 reads, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. And if I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. Um, Now, I want you to imagine the sun rising and just coming over these mountains to the east here in the Gallant Valley. Um, And just as it peaks its head, over the over the mountains uh, you hop on that puppy and you ride it westward you're on this sunbeam okay and you're riding this sunbeam westward toward the pacific ocean okay and you end up out past seattle out past oregon washington out in the ocean somewhere on some remote little island that's the picture that we're getting here in verse 9 or i'm sorry in verse 10 No, it was verse 9. If I take the wings of dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me. Guys, we can't flee God. He cannot be fled from. He is everywhere. His presence is everywhere. Um, Well, with that as somewhat of an introduction for this evening's topic, um, I'd like to take some time to prove this to you, to look at some more scriptures on it. I will do my best to explain this. However, because, because of God's infiniteness, because of the fact that He is infinite and He's fully all of these things, we won't fully be able to comprehend it. We have finite minds. Um, we can do our best and we can grow in appreciation for the Lord. He's given us that ability to, to understand and to appreciate Him, but we won't fully comprehend. Well, with that as a background, let me dive into kind of a logical argument, if you will. Uh, Raise your hand if you've ever studied logic, even just a little bit, or are familiar with it. Okay, well, this is no uh, fancy logic argument. It's a very simple one. Um, But starting out with the first premise or uh, proposition, and that is that God is present in all places. So God is present in all places. This means, uh, omni means all, and presence means present. So omnipresence just means He's in all places. Um, As one theologian would put it, if God be... He must be somewhere, and that which is nowhere is nothing. This is just basically to say, if there is a place that exists, God is there. Everything that is, He is there. This includes the entire expanse of the universe and desolate places like the North and South Pole on our planet that we don't even think about. God is everywhere. He fills everything, which kind of leads to the second premise. God is fully present wherever He is present. The essence of God's omnipresence does not mean that He is in part located in several places. He's not partly in China and partly in Europe and partly in America. He is fully all places. His full essence is there. Uh, and this kind of leads to the logical conclusion, which we'll spend a little bit more time at, but, uh, and that would be that He is fully present in all places. If God is in all places and wherever He is, He is fully present, then it would be follow that he is fully present in all places. Um, okay, well, how can that be? How can that be? Uh, to try and understand this, let me explain. God, God made, when he created in Genesis, he made time, matter, and space. And thus far in Imago Day, we've studied a couple of, of attributes that might uh, lend to understanding. One is that God is eternal. Well, this means that God created time. Time exists within God. God created time, and so therefore he's outside of time. He's not bound by time. Okay, last week, what did Andy teach on? Andy taught on omnipotence or almighty, omnipotence. So God is all-powerful. Okay, God created matter, but He is completely above and in control of all matter. There's nothing that exists that He is not powerful over, including circumstances, how that matter interacts with one another. God is outside of matter, okay? Well, then the third one, if God created time, matter, and space, it would follow that uh, God is outside of space. He's not limited by space. He created space, and therefore He is not bound by space or limited by it, but He fills all space. Um, For example, imagine if there's a small closet, and it's chocked full with basketballs, and the basketballs are packed in there so tightly that when you open it, they don't even roll out. They're They're packed to the top. We might open that and say, well, I can't fit in there, and you'd be absolutely right. Or, oh, can't hang my coat in there, and that's right, because the space is taken up. God is not limited by space, though. God is not, He can be fully in that closet because everything exists within Him. He's not bound by the confines of space like we as humans are. Yeah, God is present at every space in the universe. And like I kind of mentioned, to bring another of His attributes to light, This is because of His infinitude. By He being infinite, He is not bound by bounded things such as space and time, but rather He transcends them. I love this word transcends. It means goes beyond or goes above. He goes above time. He goes above matter. He goes above space. He is beyond. He transcends them. Um, Yeah, and further, as part of His omnipresence, God is not limited to one space or one region. He is not bound by either the earth or the heaven at any given time. Since He is God, He is at all spaces at all times, and He is fully there at all times. He's omnipresent. Jeremiah twenty three, twenty three through 24 says, Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? God is both here and there, and none can hide so as to not be seen by Him. And His presence fills the entire earth and the entire heavens. Um, Just to kind of demonstrate this, um, I've got a small demonstration here. And uh, basically, I just want you to imagine for a moment that this is the universe. This is my best attempt to make this place look like the universe. Um... (laughs) actually, let's say this is the galaxy that the earth exists within. This is the Milky Way, okay? Every room in Grace Bible Church is another galaxy in space. So the fireside room is another galaxy. The gym is another galaxy. The pastor's offices are another are other galaxies, and uh, and God fills every one of them. He fills every one of them fully. He doesn't do so by by limiting himself though he's not stretching himself out and giving a tenth of himself there a tenth of himself there he is fully here in this sanctuary or in this galaxy if you will he is fully here he is fully in the gym see all of space exists within god it it exists within god further if you imagine that the stage i'm standing on is the earth god fills the earth that's why he can, he can be in heaven and be sitting on His throne, but He can also be filling the earth at the same time because He's omnipresent. He is way bigger than we think. Um, as humans, we're limited. I can't be where that piano is because the piano's there. But God, God is not limited in this way. He is, he is everywhere and He fills everything. Well, now we cannot imagine for a second, and we're still sitting in the same spot. But the facts haven't changed. God is still here. This isn't the Milky Way galaxy. This is Grace Bible Church's sanctuary. And yet God fills this room. He fills this room fully. He is here right now in our midst. That's cool. We'll see later that in Him we move, live, and have our being. He fills everything and anything that is, anything that is God fills. Acts 17.28 I just alluded to it. In Him we live and move and have our being. I liken this to a fish in the sea or, or a bird in the air. So, as, so are we in the presence of God. See, the fish is so surrounded, encompassed by the sea, that's its livelihood. It doesn't even really realize it's in the sea, but the fish is fully engulfed by the sea. So are we, full, like air, guys, to us. We are in God's presence all the time. God upholds all things. He is, there's, nothing where he, there's nowhere He's not, and there's nothing where He's not working in. The universe is within God, and further, the universe does not contain God. It doesn't bind Him. Um, he fills everywhere and is not bound or limited by anywhere. He is infinite. Well, that's kind of the, the thrust of His omnipresence. And there are some potential hurdles. I had it labeled misconceptions earlier, but I don't think that's good because they're true, but they're hurdles that we have to get over in in order to continue to understand this. Um, And the first one is that God dwells in heaven. Okay, well, God dwells in heaven. I thought God dwelt in heaven. I didn't didn't think he dwelt everywhere. I thought his dwelling place was heaven. Uh, And this is absolutely true. I don't want to deny this for a moment. This is true. God does dwell in heaven. However, The scriptures that refer to His dwelling in heaven never say He only dwells in heaven. He is not bound to heaven. Isaiah 66 says that heaven is His throne and the earth is His footstool. So even in that verse, we see that God is present in heaven and on the earth. He is present in all these places. On the contrary, this idea of placing God to dwelling in heaven or dwelling on high is an expression of His excellencies in nature. The fact that He dwells in heaven means that He can be there. I think that it'd be safe to say Scripture points this out because this is a place where God can be, but we cannot. We're confined to this sin-filled world. We're confined to this corrupt world. God can also be here. He is here. However, He can be in heaven. He can be in the place where only holy things can be, only set-apart things can be, only perfect things can be. That's where God can be, and that's kind of the emphasis of that. We do not dwell there, and we cannot dwell there until we are perfected in Christ, until we're brought home you tracking with me? Okay, good. The second uh, hurdle, if you will, is that God dwells, I thought God dwelt in the temple and in the ark in the Old Testament. Psalm 26.8, we're told that God's glory dwells in the ark or at the temple. Or um, Exodus 24.16, we see the glory of God on Mount Sinai. Okay, this isn't the ark of the temple, but it, it seems as though His presence is in an area. And I want to emphasize the fact that in these verses, it's talking about the glory of God dwelling there. The glory of God dwelling there. Glory is synonymous with worship. Uh, the glory of God is the worship of God. Romans 1 says that they exchanged the glory of God for that of the incorruptible, or of the, of the incorruptible God for an image of the form of a corruptible man. Let me re say that. They exchanged the glory of God for an image of the corruptible man. So another way to say is they exchanged worshiping God for the worship of an idol. They worshiped a corruptible image of man. And, And to tie this back in, the temple was said to show the glory of God. That's because the temple was a place where he was worshipped. Just like in church, we worship God here. The glory of God was in the temple. The glory of God was in the ark, and that is where he was to be worshipped. It was a designated place to worship God. Does that mean that his presence was confined to there? No. He upholds all things. He is everywhere. But that is where he was to be worshipped. Number three, God is not omnipresent by division, extension, or multiplication. I kind of hit on this a second ago, but he he does not have to divide himself. He doesn't have to extend or stretch himself, and he doesn't have to multiply himself. He doesn't have to make duplicates. Uh, he is fully everywhere. Further, when God created, he didn't, he didn't have to... When he created, he did not have to expand himself and stretch himself out in order to keep in, in size with the universe. So as he made the universe, he didn't have to go, oh, I better get bigger. This is a big creation I have here. Um, no, think of it this way. What about before creation? Wherever there was, whatever it was, before He created anything, God filled it. He was there fully. He filled it. And so when He created, everything was within Him. It's within Him. There's nothing way too far out there. I mean, we keep finding new stuff way out there uh, with our space technology, telescopes and whatnot, but there's nothing out there for God. It's all within Him. And further, He is at all of those places. Well, he also, like I said, he didn't have to extend himself. He didn't have to multiply himself. He doesn't have to say, okay, I I have a lot of places to cover. i got to be in South America, North America, Jupiter, Mars, uh, this galaxy over here. I better make a bunch of myself, duplicate. No, God did not duplicate himself. He just is. He is. He fully is everywhere. Fourthly, sometimes God is said to be far off. And as a reminder, God is always fully everywhere. In his essence however it does seem that scripture uh, often says things like that he departed like in first samuel 16 14 it says the spirit of the lord departed from saul okay well what does that mean well of course we know that god's essence is still um, what was supporting paul god's essence upheld paul he is in all things he sustains all things But at this point, it might be said that he withdrew his special assisting providence or his special presence, if you will. Uh, It's not a very scientific term, but I'm going to use it tonight. His special presence. When departed, we are left with God's justice often. Uh, And when he draws near, we are encircled with his mercy. So there's a sense in which he can be present in different ways to us, but he is still fully present in everything. Does that make sense? It'll become clear, hopefully. His presence may be felt or manifested in different ways. Uh, Number five, God is not unified with creatures. Okay, God is not unified with creatures. He sustains all. He is in all, but He is not all. Uh, A fish is sustained and upheld and has its being in the ocean, but a fish is not the ocean. A fish is not water. Um, Iron may be heated in fire so hot that it looks like the fire. It appears to be the fire itself but the iron is not the fire. And just as we are constantly in air, we are not air. We live and we move and we have our being in God, but we ourselves are separate from God. This is important because what do we say about a paper shredder that shreds paper? Did we just shred God up? Uh, How about a fireplace that consumes a fireplace? How about your dog Spike that gets a hold of something and tears it to shreds? No, no, no. God is not... He is separate from His creatures. From everything He's created, He is separate. He withholds and... He upholds all things, but He is separate from them. <laughs> it makes me think of a, a sermon I was listening to one time by Rick Holland, and uh, he just got done explaining to his little boy uh, that God is everywhere at all times, and He's always there, and he's, he's everywhere. And so his son looks up at him and goes, Daddy, is, is God in this cookie? Oh, eats the cookie. <laughs> Did I just eat God? <laughs> Rick's kind of sitting there. No, but... <laughs> The point is is that God is separate, okay? Uh, Number six, God is not worshiped through idol worship. Why does this matter? Well, because as man is so often good at doing, uh, incorrect worship of God can arise. And to display this, I have a couple of object lessons. And the first is a Hershey's bar. I could say, "Mm, yeah, this is God. I'm going to worship God by eating this. Okay, yum, Mm, yeah. Man, God, you're good. The second would be, some of you guys might be familiar with what this is. This is an Xbox controller. Oh, yeah, worshiping the Lord. Yes, yes, yes. How about sports? Football, basketball, track? These are all things we can put a lot of time into, right? Lastly, um, just so you guys can kind of see this, this is an Idol. It's an actual idol. It came from Cambodia. Um, and really, for us, it can represent fill in the blank. It can represent fill in the blank. Because the fact of the matter is, is that this is not God. It's chocolate. This is not God. It's plastic. This is not God. It's leather. This is not God. It's a piece of wood. It's fill in the blank for whatever it might be for you. But the point is is that we can so often, I mean, this could be a whole nother talk, but guys we are idol factories, as one, as one theologian put it. We worship things besides God. We put our time and effort into the way we look, food, pleasure, entertainment, sports, whatever it be. You fill in the blank. What is the idol? God is not His creation. He is not His creatures. He is not worshiped through idol worship. He is worshiped through correct worship of Him. And you know, it seems kind of foolish as we look up here. um, You might think, well, who would ever worship that? That's the least likely thing that we would worship. And yet, what did they do in the Old Testament? What did they do in the Old Testament? They made for themselves idols, and they bowed down and worshiped them as if they were God. Moses went up to Mount Sinai. They came back. They made a golden calf. Really? Really? It's not out of the realm. It's not out of the realm to to fall into this. And especially maybe for these two in here or the way we look or the way we think our food, whatever. It's not out of the realm. Well, now I kind of want to move to this idea of God being able to be present in different ways, different presences. Um, He can be present for blessing. He can be present for judgment. And He can be present for just sustenance which is the third one He always is. Uh, but He can be present in different ways, and He can do so without contradicting His own character. You see, we are we are predisposed to think that God's presence is always a good thing. Oh yeah, in the presence of God. Yeah, and there's some truth to that, because a lot of times it's when we're with the body when we're saying that. But God's presence is not necessarily always a good thing. Sometimes He's just there to sustain. Sometimes He's there to accomplish His greater purposes. How about 9-11? Was God there? Was He not there? Are you gonna, I mean can we conclude he wasn't there? No, he was there. He's everywhere. He sustains all things. All things that happen, like Andy talked about, uh, are under his control. They're under his power. He's almighty. Because these things don't seem joyous at times, um, we might be prone to say God wasn't there. But God is always there, guys. He's always for one, he's always working together His purposes that we don't understand. And for two, He is always sustaining all things. For three, He can be there at a special time to show judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah. Was God not there? No, He was there. He was exercising His judgment. He can also be there to bless. Psalm 16.11 says, In your presence is fullness of joy. And in 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Where the Lord is, there is freedom. So He can be, he could definitely be present to bless. And this kind of moves me to that next point, which is that God's special presence is unique to those who are His. Up to this point, you might be saying, well, Matt, I know God's everywhere, but when I got saved, it changed. It changed for me, if you've been saved, that is. Uh, you know, I, I didn't ever feel God before, and now I, f- I feel close to God, and I know Him, and I know He's there with me. And you are absolutely right. I'm not arguing with you for a second. And that's because of this unique, special presence. This, um, this providential presence of God to assist us in doing His work. We see things in Isaiah like, I will go before you and call upon the Lord while He is near. You know, there's a sense in which, going back to this idea of Imago day, God created us in His image. We are cognitive free agents, if you will. Um, and He's made us for relationship. He, he's given us this relational aspect, and therefore he desires relationship with us. And this sort of presence, for, back of a, for lack of a better term, is the special presence, and it's above and beyond the sustaining presence that we've been discussing. It's different than his filling of the universe and his filling of, of heaven and his filling of everything. And this is a presence where the spirit resides in the hearts of the believer where it enlightens our minds, where it comforts us knowing that we are walking with God. As Christians, we know what it feels like to walk with God. We know because He is constantly with us. Not just within us, but within us. He moves within the believer to accomplish His work. He provides us with grace to accomplish His work. By His presence, we are compelled to do His work. There's nothing good in us. I myself do not desire to do God's work, but God's presence, His special presence, inspires me and enables me to do something, at least hopefully for His glory. This is not experienced by everybody, though. This is special to the believer. It's unique to the believer. Well, now that we are informed about God's omnipresence, uh, we have the conceptual understanding, if you will. I'd like to now consider some implications of this truth. Why does it matter? To take our theology and, and to see what practical thoughts can be drawn for our lives and the way we live. As Jeremy has taught a few weeks ago, that our theology informs our doxology. What we know informs what we do or how we praise and worship. And, guys, like I said something earlier, we don't have to imagine, okay, imagine God's filling this universe. It's true. God is, God is filling this sanctuary right now. He is filling Bozeman, Montana. He is everywhere. He is right here, right now, sustaining everything that is happening. God's omnipresence is real. It's, it is so real, guys. He is here, and He is yeah. in Him we live and move and exist and have our being. Well, in light of this, uh, what what sort of things might fill up might up well might uh, come to the surface? And the first is fear. Fear. Why do I say fear? Because if you don't know the Lord, if he even further, if he doesn't know you, if he doesn't know you personally, there there should be fear that comes up, guys. Because God is he is right there. He sustains you. He upholds you. And if for your entire life you've maybe known about him, but you've You've failed to surrender yourself to Him because of pride. You haven't humbled yourself to Him. You're not right with God. You are not in a right standing with God. With the omnipresent God of the universe, you are not in right terms with Him. You see, we're, we're born under the curse of sin. Further, we all are expert at sinning. We're expert sinners. I like to say fish swim, birds fly, men sin. That's what we do. We're good at it. And because of God's holiness and justice, you see, He's so holy that even the the slightest sin He must punish. He must punish it. It wouldn't be a just God if He didn't punish it. He wouldn't be a fair God if He didn't punish sin. He has to. He is so holy. I want you to imagine the widest white sheet or the widest blanket of snow you can imagine. Even a small speck of dust or of blood, it doesn't even have to be much. But it, it stands out so much. I mean, if I were to put a tiny dot of blood right in the middle, you could probably see that tiny dot of blood. Well, that is what it's like with God. Even the slightest sin is offensive to him. It's not acceptable to him. He's holy. It just isn't him. It's not, he, he can't accept it. He has to punish sin. And that is where God's mercy is displayed. His love, His compassion. That is why the cross matters. That is why He sent His Son, Jesus, to die. was to cover that sin. You see, as man, we're not, we're not worthy to, to pay for the extent of our sin. We couldn't do it in time. We, we're not worth enough. It'd be like a million dollar debt and we're worth a penny. We're not worth enough and we're not going to be alive long enough. We're not even going to be dead long enough to pay for our sin. That's why Christ, being holy and perfect, was able to cover the sins of all because He is is above sin. He is apart from sin. God is merciful. He sent His Son to substitute for our sin. He's calling you to repentance if you don't know Christ, if you don't know Him personally. And you might be asking, what is repentance? I like to think of repentance as a narrow hallway. If there's a narrow hallway and you're walking in it, and that way sin... You're walking towards sin. You're living your life of sin. You turn from sin, but you don't just turn to face the hallway wall. You turn this way. And what's that way? This way is Christ. This way is Jesus. So it's, repentance is the act of turning from sin and turning to Christ in childlike faith. Why do I say childlike faith? Because how much faith do children have? Santa Claus, Easter Bunny. Children are all in. Kids don't have doubts They are all in. When they believe something, they don't have doubts. They haven't been burnt by this world. They haven't been burnt by lies. Kids have faith. They say, yeah, I believe. Here we go. That's why we're we're told, in childlike faith, repent. In childlike faith, believe. Guys, I was there before. I was there before. I was too proud. Uh, I thought I had it good. I I thought I was good to go. Pretty good kid. I pray. I read. I read. My Bible, once a year maybe. Start in Genesis, get to Exodus, quit. Start in Ge- but I prayed every night, and I, I believed in Jesus. But I was too proud to completely surrender myself to Him. I, w- I didn't have any sort of humbleness within me that said, Lord, I'm not good. I'm not good. I'm still not good. And that's why we continually need God's grace. We continually need to turn to Christ, turn from sin, because we are not good. This, this takes humility though. It takes humility saying, Lord, I, I don't got it. I don't have it. I don't have what it takes to be right with you. I don't have what it takes to enter your kingdom. I need your forgiveness. I need your son. What's cool about that though, guys, is that it can be I mean it can be done tonight. It can be done. In your room this evening. It can be done Saturday. It doesn't have to be done at the foot of an altar. You don't have to do some altar call. You don't have to raise your hand and have the pastor say, I see you there. I see you there. God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. God is not, he is not excluded to only in these hyper-spiritual settings of church and of youth groups and uh, ministries even like this. Sure, God is here tonight. He is also everywhere else. So if you don't know Christ, turn to Him in childlike faith in the quietness of your own heart. Ask for forgiveness. God, He's there. He'll know. He'll know the state of your heart. Implication number two is conviction of secret sin. And this is somewhat linked to the past one, but um, it certainly applies to believers and non-believers. And that is that God is omnipresent. And this, just as a reminder, God is omnipresent. This means He's fully at all places. And He fully knows our heart's intentions. He fully knows the words we say and we don't say. Psalm 139 verse 4 says, Even before there is a word on my tongue, Lord, You know it. He fully knows all the things that we want to do, and He fully knows the things that we do do. The things that no one else knows, but that we know. The things that we keep hidden. The perfect offense. The crime where our footprints are are clearly covered. There was no witnesses. No one saw, heck, no one was even impacted by it. There will be no consequence for this sin. So you think. But God knows, guys, God knows. And what is this crime that I'm talking about? It's sin. It's sin from within the souls of, of men and women. And guys and gals, God knows. He knows us better than than we know us. He knows me better than I know me. It, and he's there. He's there when we sin. He's there when we do this. He's right there. When we act in a heathen manner, when our Christian friends aren't around, God is right there. When we show up to church and act one way, and we show up to whatever campus ministry it might be, and we show up to our Bible studies and cross life, and God's there, yeah. But He's also there when you go home. He is everywhere where we are. How does He know, though? because He sees it firsthand. He sees it. Hebrews 4.13 says, there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him. Young men, He stands right before us as we close the door to do whatever it might be. He doesn't need someone to testify. He doesn't need someone to come to Him and say, God, I saw Him doing this. I saw Him. Did you see Him? I saw Him. God's there. He sees all things. They're laid bare before Him. Back when there was kings uh, and the kings had their law, if a person sinned against the... Let me rephrase. Not sinned. If the person broke the law of the king, it was a crime. It was bad. It was punishable probably in prison. But if the person did the same crime in front of the king, in the king's presence, this was way worse. You do not do a wicked thing in front of the presence of the king. This is the king you're to be bowing in front of the king. If you're caught sinning in front of the king, this is bad news. And yet how great, how much higher is our king? How much higher is our God who sees all? Whenever we sin, we sin in the presence of God. Well, here's the other bummer. For most of us tonight, the idea of God being omnipresent is not entirely new. We didn't know technical things about it, but we grew up believing, "Yeah, God is with you. You know, He's always there." And so, what this means is that when we sin, we're really committing two sins because first we go like this to God: we stiff-arm God, we shove Him away, we say, "Oh, I want to do the sin, get away, so that we can just sin in peace without conviction of knowing that God is there." Well, now you've you've defied God, you've denied God's existence, His attributes his character who he is his holiness and then you've turned and then you've done the sin as well so that you can sin in peace and guys i've been there i have been there and the second the sin is over it's like god's presence zooms back in on me but what do we do in that moment what do we do we push god away we suppress him so that we can sin guys and i want to urge you do not do that Let's let's not do that. Let's do our best to not do that. God is all-powerful. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is completely holy. And He is there. He's there. He's here. He's wherever. He's wherever there might be. How do you think a holy God feels when we sin right before Him? Further, if you're a believer, the Spirit indwells us. How do you think the Holy Spirit feels? I had a great talk with Jeremy the other day about this conflict of the spirit living within us, how does the spirit feel when we sin? it can 't be comfortable it can 't be comfortable for God it can 't be comfortable for the spirit they don 't know sin they're not they don 't sin let 's flee sin and remember that God is omnipresent well god 's on a little lighter note god 's omnipresence does always, doesn 't always make us feel shameful. Um, Conviction is good. Don't get me wrong. It's a blessing. You should feel blessed if you feel conviction from God and maybe even if you're feeling it tonight. I know I was as I've studied this. Even as I say it, I'm convicted that God is always there. Okay, I don't act like, I don't want to pretend like I'm above all this. I mean, there's conviction and that is a good thing. If you have conviction, consider it a blessing. Really, it's when you don't have conviction that you ought to worry. But um, further, God... Is a comfort. This is the third point is that there is comfort from the Lord in times of temptation and in times of, of trials or tribulation. When sin roars its ugly head, when our inner wicked self begins to tug at us, take heed, guys, God is there. Not only is he in part there, but he is fully there, like we looked at earlier. In his full presence, God is there. His holiness, his goodness, his almightiness, his compassion. God is fully everywhere in His complete essence. We can take comfort in the fact that it is God's will for us to flee temptation, to flee sin, to live our lives in a way that's contrary to sin in the world. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 Some of you might know it. It says, this is the will of God. Your sanctification. God desires for us to be set apart, gang. He desires for us to be set apart from sin. This is why in James... When, when he wrote his epistle, he put in there, the Lord said, be holy as I am holy. Be set apart as I am set apart, you could say. God wants us to be holy and to flee sin. But he doesn't just say, alright, be holy, flee sin, good luck. No, no, no. He's there. 1 Corinthians 10.13, another great memory verse. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it listen here again we will not face a temptation that we cannot overcome by God's grace and his presence it says right here we will not be tempted beyond what we are able to bear And that with any temptation, God will provide the way of escape. He will provide the way of escape. When we fall to sin, it's because we do this. We stiff-arm God. We push Him away. He's right here, literally right here, and yet we suppress Him at times. But you see, in any temptation, there should be great comfort in knowing that God is there, He desires for us to be holy, and He is there to provide the way of escape. He's there to provide the way of escape. He wants us to be victorious over sin. And through Him, there's the power to conquer sin. Comfort area number two. God's comfort comes in times of tribulation or in times of trials. Uh, When we find ourselves between a rock and a hard place in life, God is there. When sickness or tragedy or disaster arises, There's great comfort in knowing. Knowing that we are not alone. There's a sense in which the unbeliever and the believer alike can say God is there in the midst of difficulty and they would be absolutely right. We hear it all the time. Oh, well, God God be with you. God's there. God's there. We hear this out of the mouths of unbelievers all the time. And that's right. He's there to sustain. But as I mentioned earlier, there's this special relational aspect that is experienced when a person is born again into relationship with God, at which point the presence is not only there in a sustaining way, but it's felt. It's You know, believer, you can relate to me, with me in this. You know God is with you at times. And yet, for some reason when, when trials hit, we think he, he couldn't be farther away. In Psalm 139, verse 10, Uh, the the passage we looked at earlier, David reminds us, even at this remotest place, even way out on the island, he says, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. Believer, Believer, there's great comfort in knowing that God walks through these things with us. When we go through difficult circumstances in life, when there's pain or disappointment, or whatever severity of the trial, it doesn't matter if it's big or small, God is there. Isaiah forty three two. Turn there if you would with me. Isaiah is after Psalm. Psalm's in the middle and you turn right to Isaiah. We're gonna go to forty three verse two. says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. It's not as though God is fully present at all times, then when a trial hits, He's gone. He abandons us. I know we often tend to feel this way, like I mentioned, but here's another little concept just on the side. We need to be people that remind ourselves often of what we know. In a sense, we need to counsel ourselves. We need to, as Brian Hughes would say, grab ourselves by the shirt collar, shake ourselves and say, listen here, self, here's what I know is true. Why? Because instead of, of living on how we feel, on how our emotions feel, the process ought to work like this. What we know, what we know is true. Okay, I know this is true. I know this is true. It starts to influence what we think. It starts to influence what we feel, which, inf- which starts to influence what we do. But the world has this process completely backwards. They do everything based on feeling. Oh, I don't feel good, so I think this, or I think this, or I think this. Guys, we need to be people who remind ourselves of what we know is true. Further, it is a promise, it's a guarantee that if you love God, if you're a child of God, everything in your life is being worked together for good. I don't. I don't want to stand stand up here sounding like a prosperity teacher. But Romans eight twenty eight for those of you that know it says we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him. When we face trials in life, we can with confidence cling to God Almighty, to God All Powerful, to His full essence, and know that it is being worked for some good, for my sanctification, or for someone else's sanctification, or maybe He's working through it to save someone. God's ways are not our ways. His his ways are are above our ways, but we can cling to promises like this that we know that He is good and we can cling to Him because He's there. He is omnipresent. I mean, Andy talked about it last week. Even Joseph, Joseph, when he was sold into slavery by his brothers uh, and shipped off to Egypt, what happened? God used this scenario for good. He used it for good. It seems so bad. He was, shipped out. he was put into slavery and yet by the end of the story he's risen to second in command of the Egyptian empire. We can know for sure that he is near to us, that he is good, he's working good, that he is wise in all of his ways, and that he is causing these things to work together for good. Well, in closing, there are many things to be drawn from God's omnipresence. As I first set out on this to study this, I just thought, man, this seems like some big theological idea, but hopefully we've seen there are huge implications for our lives. Again, this idea of theology informing doxology, theology informing what we do. And let us respond to this fact. Let us now take this and change. If you go back to Psalm 139, I want to close here. As I was reading through the psalm, it kind of jumped out at me. At the, the bookends of this psalm, David is he's really talking about God's omnipotence, His omnipresence. But at the bookends of this psalm, I kind of see some similarities. Let me read one through four. It says, "O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down, and are intimately acquainted with all my ways." Okay? And then as we kind of work through the Psalm, verses 5 through 10, we see David saying things like, Where can I go from your spirit? So he starts out by saying, He he states the facts. In 1 through 4, he says, You have searched me. You know. You scrutinize. You are intimately. Okay? He's stating facts here. In 5 through 10, he's saying, Where can I go from your spirit? Even the darkness is not dark to you. And yet as we move to 14, he begins to internalize these truths. Look at 14 with me. It says, Wonderful are your works. Down on the second part. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. This had gone from something that he was just assenting to 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 his soul knowing it well, it being internalized, this truth going in, internalizing this results in a heart of thankfulness as we look at 17. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. And then David closes his psalm later on down there in 22-24 in to 24 by using parallel language to 1-4, through four, but a little bit different. Now what does he say? Look at 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and my anxious thoughts. Know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. I don't believe David is saying this arrogantly, but rather pleading with God the very truth that had been revealed to him, namely his omnipresence. He cannot escape the presence of God. He's come to that conclusion. It's internalized. It's gripped him. It is set into his soul. And as a result, he pleads with God, search me, God. He starts out by saying, Lord, you have searched me. You have known me. You have. But then he closes by saying, Lord, search me. Lord, know me. See if there is evil or harming me. See where I'm going wrong. Lead me in the everlasting way. David recognizes the infinitude of God in now in knowledge and power of being, resulting in his surrender of all to God. Guys, my prayer and hope would be that we would do the same based on what we know of God now. That through Imago Day we wouldn't just be smarter Christians or smarter sinners, even, but that these truths would be internalizing. They would be setting into our souls that they would change us. I'm speaking to myself too speaking to Tanner and Andy too, that we would all be taking these in and learning and growing in Christ-likeness. That we would draw toward the special presence of God. And as the psalm says, that we would truly be able to say, God, in Your presence is fullness of joy. Would you bow with me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, You are you're infinite. God, you are infinite in your goodness. God, you are better than we can even imagine. Lord, you are infinite in your power. Lord, more powerful than we can imagine. Lord, you are infinite in your grace, and your mercy, and your compassion. Father, you're infinite in your existence. God, would the fact the facts that we've learned this semester, Lord, as we've studied Imago Day would they grip us lord would they grip us deep in the roots of our being lord in the roots of our soul would they grip us and change us father lord would you humble us god would you make us to to realize we don't have it we don't have it figured out lord that we still need you we need you and we continually need you god father would you give us strength to cling to you lord to live a life that is glorifying to you god to be conformed to the image of your Son. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Cross Life. Feel free to share this recording with others, but please do not charge for it or alter the contents in any way. For more recordings or other information about Grace Bible Church, visit gbcmt.org.